Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Revealing the truth behind the games we play. Coming up in this episode... One group of people who say that women's sport must be absolutely protected against men. It's an unsolvable problem. I couldn't distance myself further from the identity politics and the nonsense around the politicization of this issue. At th- now, at that time, the fear was that men would enter women's competitions in order to win them. Welcome to the Science of Sport. Uh, my name is Mike Finch. I'm here with uh, Professor Ross Tucker. And today we're going to be talking about uh, probably the most controversial issue in the world of sport, maybe outside doping, maybe even more controversial than that. And that is the story of sex and gender in sport. And um, as we sit here doing this podcast, we're awaiting the decision by the Court of Arbitration in Lausanne around the Casta Semenya case against the IWF. And I know that Ross is very involved in that. But just to give us some context around this case... Um, we're not talking specifically about Caster Semenya today, but what we are talking about is the issues that surround Caster Semenya and how that affects sport going forward. So what we're expecting in the IWF decision, or the, not the IWF decision, the Court of Arbitration decision, is something that will not only affect athletics, Ross, but also will affect the world of sport in general. Yes, and will have repercussions for, for transgender athletes also. So... And, and one of the points, I think, of this podcast is to try and explain to people what they're actually dealing with because transgender and DSDs are often bundled together and they're actually different, covered mm. by different regulations, similarly complex, maybe one slightly simpler than the other. But, but the, the, the current, call it social trend for inclusion society-wise has implications for sports performance and the integrity of women's sports. And that's why this gets controversial because it, it divides very quickly into two aggressive camps. There's one group of people who say that women's sport must be absolutely protected against men. And there's another group of, sport that, uh, group of people who want to be inclusive. And those two groups are at loggerheads and there's tremendous tension and aggression. Yeah. And it is ultimately especially in the case of, of DSDs, like in the case of Semenya, it's an unsolvable problem. Yeah. Well, let's just take a slight step back. Uh, don't forget, you can follow us at Science of Sport Podcast. Uh, that's the podcast. That's the Twitter handle for the actual podcast we're doing. Ross is at Science of Sport. So you can look that up on Twitter and I'm Mike Finch SA. So all the links to the stories and some of the stories that will appear on Ross's site, sportscientist.com as well, which you can look up looking at Science of Sport. That will also come up. Um, he'll be giving some detail on some of the podcasts that we're doing. But just have a look. Let's have a look very briefly at the at the sort of timeline around Cassidy. Semini. And let's, let's use Casta Semini as almost the example that we're talking about here because everybody knows the Casta Semini story. She's probably the most high-profile high athlete in this space. In 2009, she won the African Champs as an 18-year-old. She went on to world, win the World Championships. In March 2010, she was suspended by the IWF. And Ross, you're saying not necessarily suspended, but basically it was, it was illegal for her to compete because of these supposed high testosterone levels. Yeah, so 
anyone who thinks back to 2009 will probably remember this. It was a big deal. Yeah. Especially here in South Africa because it got heavily politicized over and above the complex biology. So basically this 18-year-old woman goes and wins the 800 in pretty dominant fashion. I remember watching her win a heat of those world championships where she actually tripped and fell after about 250 meters on her hands and knees and then lost maybe 20 meters, picked herself up and yeah. won the heat. And I thought, well, if you can do that, and sure, it's just a heat, you're going to win this thing handily. And she was. She was completely dominant. And won 55.45. And then it was revealed... As an 18-year-old. As an 18-year-old, yeah. So it was, yeah. a, it was a big shock because we hadn't seen a time like that in a long time since the years of Maria Matola. Yeah, and speaking frankly, if you look at the list of the top 20 performers in history she inserted herself onto that list there's not an athlete on that list who hasn't been accused of something yeah whether it's having a similar medical condition as as she has um or whether it was doping in most instances i reckon three quarters of those athletes date back to the 1980s and were doping so an 18 year old who emerges from nowhere and runs that fast is going to have questions asked and in her case because there were subsequently leaks that she'd been, quote, unquote, gender tested. And we need to discuss exactly what that means because yeah. it's an inaccurate word. And we need to unpack what testing means. The media headlines the day after she won was basically dominated by these accusations. And that is where the story actually begins. And I think what happened in response to that uh, at the time was that the IWF said our current policy to regulate gender slash sex in sport is not fit for purpose. We need to make some changes. And the change that they made in 2010 was they introduced testosterone as the way they were going to regulate it. Because before that, it was genetic, it was physiology, it was your internal medicine, basically. And they basically said, right, let's just make testosterone the target of regulation. And that is where the second phase of this particular story begins. So then in July 2010, she was reinstated after a number of uh, sort of controversies went through. I think the sad story about when she was suspended, she pitched up at an athletics meet in Stellenbosch here in Cape Town and wasn't able to compete. And it was probably the only time she kind of spoke out about the trauma that she was going through as an athlete by not being allowed to compete in an event she kind of pitched up at. So there was that real yeah. emotional um, linked to to her and what she was going through as a as a person. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't I didn't know that until you told me that this morning. Yeah, I didn't remember it at the time. I remember a lot of other stuff at the time that was actually disastrous. I mean, she was she was so heavily exploited by people for commercial and political gains. She became she became a pawn in a in a game that obviously she wouldn't want to have played. Uh, her. I mean, we're not talking about allegations of doping here. Yeah. You know, you're not, you're not talking about someone who's being criticized for something they did. This is a person being criticized for something they are, which is a pretty big deal. It's like your very existence is under the microscope in a very public way. So that period from 2009 until, well, until today yeah. must have been unbelievably difficult for her. I. I can't imagine being in that situation. Yeah. So in 2010, when she was reinstated, obviously the talk was that she's now taking these 
tablets and this medication that reduces her testosterone levels. Therefore, she's now allowed to compete. But she goes through a tough time from 2010 to 2011 to 2012. She wins silver at the World Championships and wins Olympic silver as well. So she doesn't do too badly. That gets upgraded, as we'll explain a bit later. But then goes from 2013 to 2015, doesn't have the best of times, doesn't qualify for the World Championships or the Commonwealth Games. And then we get to the point in 2016, 2017, 2018, where in 2017, which is, sorry, 2018, last year, the IWF eventually come out with a policy document which then starts dictating what the testosterone levels should be. Then Casta and her team take the IWF to court, to the court of arbitration, and now we await the decision as to whether the IWF's research and, and theories behind, not theories, but their proof behind her, her high testosterone are basically being going to be allowed in the world of sport and starting off with athletics. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's that's the very broad strokes. The, the, yeah, the very high level summary of more or less what happened. It's the it's the plot of the movie. Yeah. The, the, a couple of points I'd make about that is number one is this issue, this controversy, didn't start with Casta Semenya. In the minds of most South Africans, and unfortunately many other people, it did because they were ignorant of it before, and so to them. It all begins in 2009, and then when, when, when you're not fully informed, then it starts to look like any one of a number of different isms. Yeah. And, and I just want to state up front, like I couldn't distance myself further from the identity politics and the nonsense around the politicization of this issue. For me, as a biologist, a physiologist, I want to consider this as a physiology performance-related argument. I get that other people will want to look at it slightly differently. But for me, it's not, it doesn't need to be about any of that. It so wasn't I'm always like that. I mean, I'm going to put you on the spot here because you wrote a piece, um, I'm not quite sure when it was, somewhere around that time saying, cast a man or woman. So you had, in a way, simplified something that was very really complex back then. And you, and you say at that time you kind of regret writing that piece. <laughs> no, I don't regret writing the piece. I regret the simplicity of my headline. Yeah. Because I had to call this article something. And the background to that article was, in late July 2009, she went off to Mauritius at this relatively low-key meeting and runs well under two minutes. And I remember waking up and reading that and going like, wow, I figured I knew more or less who was who in the South African running scene. I'd never heard of this 18-year-old. So I wondered what the story was. And I emailed a friend of mine who lived up where she trained. And I said, do you know who she is? And he said, yeah, she's new here, just arrived. But I must tell you, there's some questions about gender. Yeah. So I thought, oh, well, this is going to be not so good. Let's see what happens. And so I had had subsequently a little bit more information that she'd undergone these tests in Berlin. And when she won that race, I thought, well, I've got this website, as you know. Let me write a piece explaining to people why this is going to be a controversy. Yeah. And so that article, I look back at it now, and it's actually biologically pretty good. I'm not unhappy with it. But I called it Castasomania male or female. Yeah. And in hindsight, th this, that's the whole problem here, is that people want this to be a binary solution. They want to know, is this person male or female? And well, that's the problem, is that biologically they're not. Yeah. And so inadvertently, from the very first day, I contributed to the, to the false binary um, classification that exists. But unfortunately it has to, because... You can't have infinite number of categories in sports. You have to have a men's winner yeah. and a women's winner. So people want to put people in one of those two categories. But then once every few thousand, maybe even a hundred thousand, someone doesn't fit. Yeah. And no one knows what to do. Yeah. 
Just to, uh, we have said at the start of the podcast that we're, we're not necessarily going to be focusing on Caster Semenya. So just to give you some background if you're listening, we are using her as the example that everybody knows. But let's talk specifically about uh, 2013, was it when Maduti Chand, the Indian runner, took the IWF to, to, to the Court of Arbitration around the hyperandrogenism issue, and she was one of those hyperandrogenous athletes. Um, and then as a result of that, um, the IWF changed their policy. Just tell us a little bit about what happened there and how does this affect the story around sex and gender within the sport? Sure, I'll, I'll try. But can I, can I give you a, and the listeners like a very quick history lesson sure. that ends with Judy Chand? Yeah. In 1936 was the first documented case of a controversy about a man competing as a woman. Okay, now I'm, I'm oversimplifying that because it wasn't that, mm. but that's what it was thought to be. Now, 1936 Olympics were in Berlin. That was Hitler's Olympic Games, and there were a couple of controversies. One of them involved a woman running for Poland called Stella Walsh, and she raced against an American called Helen Stevens. And there was a great deal of acrimony between those two, and when Helen Stevens won that gold, beating Walsh, who had won the previous Olympic title, Walsh accused Stevens of being a man, and then Stevens counter-accused Walsh of being a man. And th now, at that time, the fear was that men would enter women's competitions in order to win them, yeah. which is rather the same as we're dealing with now, and we'll get to that later. Uh, jump forward almost 50 years. Stella Walsh has now relocated to Ohio. She's a very famous citizen. She's very loved in Ohio. They, they basically give her the keys to the city. One day she's out shopping. She gets accosted by a robber. He pulls a gun and shoots her, and she dies. Because of the circumstances of her death, there has to be an autopsy, and those autopsy results are leaked to the press. And apparently what they reveal is that Stella Walsh has got what are called ambiguous genitalia. In other words, neither obviously male nor female genitals. And that becomes headline news. As a side note, this all happens at the same time John Lennon is shot in New York. So the Ohio newspapers have got half a page dedicated to Stella Walsh and half a page dedicated to John Lennon. It was yeah. a big deal back then. Yeah. There was no Twitter, no Facebook and so on, so it didn't blow up globally, but it was a big issue. Yeah. So there Stella, was no hashtag. There was no hashtag Stella the fella, which, by the way, is what yeah. the media called her yeah. in 1936 when, when the accusations began. She was known as Stella the fella because they thought she was masculine looking and so forth. Yeah. So she was the first one. There were a couple of others, and I don't want to give you the detailed history, but all the way through the 1950s, the 1960s, sport was struggling with this issue of how do we protect women's sport integrity? And they came up with various methods. In the beginning, it was impossibly crude and just brutal. Women who competed in these events like Commonwealth or back then Empire State Games, European Championships, literally had to display themselves naked or nude to a panel of doctors who would then certify, yes, you're a woman, go and compete. And that was just based on physically what they looked that like? That was based on yeah. the assumption that you could look at someone and decide that this person was male or female, which I think is probably what most people think is true. And to be fair, is the case in most instances. When you are born, like when your daughters and sons were born, Mike, the doctor said, congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. Finch, it's a boy or it's yeah. a girl, because it's a fairly straightforward decision. But it's not always that simple. Mm -hmm. And so... Whether it's one in 5,000 or one in 20,000 or one in a million, depending on the condition, sometimes it's much more difficult than that. And the doctor says, we'll get back to you, basically. That, that's, that's the current thing that's often done, is they don't make the identification because they wait to do further testing. So sport was struggling initially with the issue of men disguising themselves as women in order to cheat. 
But then it evolved into sports struggling with the issue of men who were not of of people competing as women, even though they were quote unquote male, and they didn't know how to tell them apart. Yeah. So they they evolved from what were these? They were known as the nude parades, which were obviously you can imagine the women must have hated this. You know, yeah. you got to go there, and you've you're a 29 year old woman. You've been a woman for 29 years, and suddenly you got to go and stand there and and be certified. So by was some everybody? Panel. I mean, back then was everybody. Everybody tested whether they were under suspicion or not, or only athletes that were seemingly under suspicion. No, the only athlete who was ever exempt from that investigation was Princess Anne. In 1976, competed in the equestrian events in Montreal. And yeah. she didn't have to do it because she was royal family or something, and someone must have put in a, a telegram or a call or something. But I mean, she's the only a, I mean, a human rights issue. Oh, it was, la- it was, a, it was mean, a disaster. It would never happen these days, was it? Was it was a disaster. So the reason yeah. I'm telling you this is because... The controversy now and the accusations that are leveled against authorities are actually nothing new. They're just more sophisticated. Mm. The problem has existed for 50 years, six, more, like 80 years if you go all the way back to Berlin. So then came what people thought was, was a reprieve. They were saved by molecular medicine and molecular biology because all of a sudden we didn't have to examine you physically. We could examine your genes. Yeah. And so very quick biology lesson Males have got an X and a Y chromosome, and females have two X chromosomes. So when you are conceived, your mother gives you an X, because she only has an X to give, Mm -hmm. and your father either gives you an X or a Y. If he gave you the Y, you're a man. If he gave you an X, you become a woman, usually. Yeah. So the premise... Seems quite simple, doesn't it? It seems quite (laughs) simple, yes. And most of the time it works. Yeah. Uh, So what happens now in sport is that they say, all right, what we'll do is we'll look for either that second X, the premise being that if you've got two Xs, you must be a woman, or we're going to look for the Y, premise being that if you have the Y, you're a man. Yeah. And then it got even more sophisticated. So now instead of looking for the X chromosome or the Y chromosome, they looked for the specific gene on the Y chromosome that was responsible for determining sex. So it got incredibly advanced but made a lot of mistakes. And the reason it makes a lot of mistakes is because in a number of people, not thousands and thousands, but enough for it to be a problem, you get people who are XX but develop as men because they've had a genetic mutation that means that their X chromosome carries the gene that's normally on the Y. Yeah. Or you get someone who's XY and who develops almost entirely as a woman because either the gene doesn't work as it should have or the gene works. So think of the gene as a light switch. So the switch is flicked, but the lights don't come on because something beyond the switch failed to happen. So in other words, maybe there was a short circuit in the wiring, yeah. to use my bad analogy. So, so the problem was that this, this idea of categorizing people as men and women based on genetics looked unbelievably attractive to the authorities, but it was super flawed. And there was a very famous case in the 1980s, I think 1983, of a Spanish 400-meter hurdler called Maria Patino who showed up at a continental championships, I think Europeans that year in Helsinki, and she had left her female passport behind. So this was, a, mm. this was a document that all female competitors had to have with them at all times. It basically certified that they'd been cleared to compete as females yeah. based on their genetics. Yeah. She left it behind. She said, no problem, I'll just go get it reissued. And when she went for that test, she failed it. So in other words, she failed the femaleness test. 
So now that's a disaster because this is a woman who's 20-something years old, mid-20s, never had a reason based to... based on what? Based on this... In her case, view? based on the fact that she didn't have two X chromosomes. Okay. So they looked at a... It, it, was called a, it was called a bar body test where if you had two X chromosomes, you would, you would find this, this bar body and she didn't have it. Yeah. So the authorities said, well, then in that case, you're not a woman. Yeah. Therefore, you're a man. And she said, what? I'm engaged. I've lived for 25, whatever it was, years as a woman. Now you're telling me I was wrong. Everyone was wrong about me. Yeah. It's the, so that's the situation that they created. Like you're gonna make, that destroys lives. In not just sporting careers, like that's a big problem. So but what it does is it puts that it, it it makes that decision about men versus women in sport much more difficult because I yeah if you were the, one of the officials back then making sure that the genetic difference between somebody the the average person would say why not just continue to do that if you're one of those people in that space yeah does it actually it's just unfortunate I mean that, that's yeah, always so the argument it is, is it just unfortunate and it is an issue there and I'm I'm sort of semi playing devil's advocate here. To agree with you, if if we weren't so socially sensitive, mm. we would draw a hard line and we'd say X Y is men, X X is women. Yeah, and we'd say that's the simplest, if imperfect, solution to this problem. So if you are X Y genetically, in other words, your chromosomes dictated that you should have been male, but you can't use the outcomes of that Y chromosome, the testosterone and so forth, in a way that makes you male. Well, too bad. Yeah. You, you're XY, therefore you were male, chromosomally. You can't compete as a, as a woman. If, if sport wanted to be super dogmatic and hard about it, they would. But we live in a society where we're trying not to do that. So the irony is that in an attempt to be inclusive, we've created more complexity. And that sort of leads to where we are now. Because so, ta so take us back then to the start of this uh, piece of conversation. Duty Chan, the, the, right. the uh, Indian runner... She was a hyperandrogenous athlete. Just define, first of all, what is a hyperandrogenous condition? Right. So, this, so if, we, if, we, if we go back to Maria Patino, there's two more steps that have to be taken. Maria Patino was one of a few athletes who'd been falsely identified as, as being a man, basically. Right? And as a result of the social pressures that came on, the authorities eventually decided that they would abandon compulsory testing of all athletes. And so in 1999, a meeting was held in which they decided that that was it. They were no longer going to continue to do this. And so as from the 2000 Olympics, there was no compulsory testing of all female athletes. 96 there was, and they found, I'm, I stand corrected, but I think they found seven athletes out of 3,000-odd female participants had a Y chromosome. Yeah. Competing as women, they were all allowed to compete, but they were flagged up by this flawed process. So from 2000 onwards, there's no official testing. But the IAAF kept, kept a policy in place that said that if a situation arose because of an accusation, because of a perception of a man running as a woman for cheating, basically, even though it's never happened. And I mean, nowadays with high-definition TVs and the scrutiny on athletes, it's not going to happen again. Yeah. But, but they said that if it happened, this was the process. It, it was a, a chromosome test, an internal medicine test, a, a genetics count, a, physio, a, a physician. Uh, a, it was a battery of about five or six different specialists who would have had to examine these athletes. And that's what would have happened to Semenya in 2009. That obviously blew up horribly now because it happened so publicly and she was roped into it. 
And so the policy of 2010 was the new version, which now said, right, let's not worry about all these other things, but let's say the testosterone, the male hormone, that is responsible for driving most of the differences we see between men and women at puberty. Anyone out there listening who's ever had a boy and a girl as kids will know that up to the age of 10, 11, maybe even 12, they are extremely similar physiologically. And then the miracle or disaster of puberty and adolescence <laughs> hits, and suddenly they become different human beings. And that is driven in large part, not entirely exclusively, but in large part by testosterone. So muscle mass, facial hair, deepening of the voice, skeleton, the heart, the lungs, pretty much everything you can think of changes no, because remember, of I testosterone. a while back, just digressing slightly, is that they, they say the most efficient athletic body is a, 20, uh, is a 13, 14-year-old girl uh, because they are stronger than most boys in that category um, and the boys haven't developed um, the testosterone yeah. hasn't started building the body for them. So, you know, 13, 14-year-old, that's why we see a lot in athletics, a lot of young girls, very, very good runners yes. uh, because they're slightly ahead of their male counterparts because the male counterparts haven't actually built that muscle right. yet. And when you look at school athletics records, you often find that the under... 13 and under 15 girls records are better than the under 17 yeah. and 19 because the changes in girls slash women's bodies or girls as they become women often count against sports performance whereas the boys just get eight nine percent better and that's testosterone again so when you look at the so it's quite a good example of how in a very small well not a small way quite a major way how much of a difference testosterone makes in a male versus versus female sport in it's, that puberty period it's, it's massive it's yeah. like and and we, and we'll have to get on to does testosterone have a performance effect because that is the big issue in the dsd cases and yeah. in the transgender athlete cases which we'll still have to cover because up to now we're talking dsds right so yeah. just to clarify i don't know if so i said you this better earlier. say what a dsd a di different of sex development differences of, of sex terms, development yeah. right yeah. so that's a that's a grouping of conditions there's half a dozen if not more conditions that fall under the DSD umbrella yeah. and they are all characterized by the atypical development of sex. So yeah. in other words, a person who is genetically XY male but who develops the phenotype, i.e. physical appearance of a female or vice versa. So it does happen the other way where you get an XX who develops male-like characteristics. And so those are DSDs. Yeah. And that's what this IWF policy covers. So let's so, go back to, to Duty Chan. The, right. The, so now the, we've the arrived, now we've arrived yeah. there. And so the, the policy post-Semenya was, they, I think they realized they had to fix it. And their solution to this problem was to focus on testosterone. Yeah. Now, we know that it's an imperfect way to do it. But the premise was that testosterone is the primary determinant of the performance difference. Therefore, let's regulate the testosterone in order to ensure fair performance. Yeah. That's, the, that's an oversimplified version, but that's what the policy in 2011, uh, 2010 rather, sorry, was meant to do. So that's this hormone, testosterone. It's, it's an androgen. Androgen literally means male making, andro male, gen creating. And testosterone is the hormone, as we've just said, that is mainly responsible for initiating secondary sex development. So primary sex development refers to the reproductive system, and a lot of that happens in the womb before birth, i.e. the generation of the male genitalia and the internal organs. 
But secondary sex development is the stuff that happens at puberty, adolescence. And that's the stuff that confers on men performance advantages that are at least 10% in running events. So when you compare Usain Bolt to Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, when you compare David Radisha even to, to the, the, the best 800-meter runners for women, when you compare Kipchoge to Paula Radcliffe, that's a 10 to 12% difference. Yeah. And that difference has been attributed primarily to the effects of testosterone on the body. So increased muscle mass, reduced fat mass, increased muscle strength, increased heart size, higher VO2 max, and stronger bones primarily. Okay, so let's, let's kind of define what those things are. There's lots of terms get thrown out when, you, when people talk about the Castor-Semenia case. And I think if anybody... I, don't, I think it's not just a case of South Africa, but around the world, every single dinner table has had a conversation about Castor-Semenia probably in South Africa, but anybody involved in sport globally would probably have done the same thing. People talk about difference of sex development. You talked about DSDs. You talked about trans transgender. We've talked about hyperandrogenism. We've talked about intersex, which is kind of an old school way of talking about this. Mm. Maybe you can just define each of one of those separately. Let's start off with, you've talked a little bit about difference of sex development, but just maybe just redefine it again for us so that people understand what that means in terms of how the average person... Yeah, so the best way to understand the difference of sex development is to first understand normal sex development. Mm -hmm. So normal sex development is that at conception, you're XY or XX, okay? There are some genetic conditions that are XXY or XYY or X naught and so on. But let's, for the sake of sanity and simplicity, let's exclude those for now because they're not really in the sports conversation. Yeah. So you're XY or XX. You and I were XX. Your sister, my sister, were XX. Sorry, <laughs> rewind. You and I were XY. Yeah. Our sisters were XX. That's right. I should have corrected you on yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, my bad. Uh... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So what happens then at about 10 weeks is that if there's a Y chromosome, it triggers the formation of testes. In the absence of that Y chromosome and that specific gene, those gonads become ovaries. So now you have males with testes, females with ovaries. The males with testes get an enormous increase in testosterone levels. As a result of the development of the testes. Yeah, because yeah. the testes are the factories that basically produce the testosterone. Yeah. And so their testosterone levels, even in the womb, are higher than in women. And that testosterone is responsible. It's, it's not just testosterone, by the way. There's a couple of other hormones that are responsible for the development of internal organs of men compared to women. Um, so, so there's, there's a, it's more complex than we're putting on, but for the sake of this discussion, I think it'll do. Yeah. So that testosterone is responsible, along with some of its family members, uh, a group of androgens, for the development of the male primary sex characteristics, i.e. the external genitalia. In our female counterparts, where that testosterone doesn't exist, they develop the female set of reproductive organs and genitalia. And that's why at birth, the assignment is simple, relatively. 
Yeah. Doctor has one look. He says, male or female, happy days, off you go. It's a boy or a girl. So that's normal sex development. When we talk about DSDs, we're talking about a group of conditions that affect that normal, sequential, anticipated process. So in other words, now you have XY, but for one of half a dozen reasons, you don't develop the male reproductive system. You don't develop the external genitalia of a boy. You develop either ambiguous or largely female genitalia, even though you have testes that are internal. Yeah. Even though you have testosterone level that is similar to a boy, you appear at birth to be female, and you will stay in appearance female or part, again, this becomes subjective, largely female, mm. potentially until adolescence. And then things might change because all of a sudden now at adolescence that testosterone level spikes again and you start taking on male characteristics, deepening of the voice, facial hair, muscle size, body fat and so forth. So some of these conditions present initially, everyone says, oh, well, it's a girl. And then by the time they get to adolescence puberty, people say, actually, you know, maybe we've, we've missed this one. And so around in different parts of the world, it's, it's known as different things because of that. It presents later as being male. And they often change their, their gender at that point. So without sounding overly simplistic, as with some genetic conditions, gender can, is, is on a spectrum to some extent. Sex um, is on a spectrum. Yeah, sex is on a spectrum. So, so, yeah. so that's, yeah. Okay, so actually let's, let's emphasize this at this point. Really important concept. Sex is biology. Yeah. Gender is social. And so when we talk about sex, we're talking about the chromosomes, the gonads, i.e. testes versus ovaries. We're talking about the genitalia. We're talking about the secondary sex characteristics, the degree of what's called virilization. How male do you appear? Facial hair, muscle mass, skeleton size. That's a biological set of things. Sex is biology. Yeah. Gender, if you go on Facebook, there are 50, 60, 80 options for gender yeah because it's how you identify yourself gender is a social construct in terms of how you identify yourself and people are allowed and this is a good thing you know 30 years ago it may not have been true 10 years heck for, yeah. <laughs> it's five, probably not years. it's probably not true in many countries of the world right now in fact yeah. it isn't but for most for the most part in 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 a reasonable society people are allowed to identify as they wish the question is and remember in our pilot we said the key thing in science is you've got to ask the right question. Yeah. Is for the purposes of sport, do we compete in categories of gender or do we compete in categories of sex? In other words, when we crown a Usain Bolt and a Shelley Ann Fraser, when we crown a Roger Federer and uh, a Naomi Osaka, are we giving prizes to the best gendered male female or is it biolo biological sex? And the problem is that people conflate those two. Yeah. And for, the, for sports authorities, they're trying to regulate a biology and everyone is trying to impose on, an, on them a gender. Because that's, that's why it's such an emotional issue. Exactly. Because of, that, because of that lack of differentiation between those two things. Exactly. Yeah. So, so people, people then get a... And so now, so now we can... And I'm sorry for jumping around, but it, it's important to understand that these are, all, these are all interconnected. <laughs> this is a spider web where, where you pull on one thread, the, the web moves on the other side. The transgender issue is where this all So that's the next converges. term we're talking about, transgender. Yeah. So, so transgender is defined. And, and for the purposes of this discussion, let's talk about transgender females. So that's, that's someone who is born and identified as male, 
grows up, often reaches puberty and adolescence as a man and early adulthood as a man and then re-identifies and says, in actual fact, I want to live as a female. Now, that person has got outside of sport medical options available, which include surgery to remove the testes. They can have cosmetic slash plastic surgery to create the appearance of being a female. They never change their genes. Yeah. They'll always be chromosomally XY male, but they then go on to live as woman. And that happens more and more and more because people have decided, I don't identify with this body that I'm in yeah. and I'm going to change over. The question for sport is what do we do with them? Yeah. Do we allow that person who in 2017 was male, no questions about it, do we allow them in 2018 or 19 to compete as female? Now, some people say, well, no, of course not. Then they'll be labeled as transphobic because they are telling those people that they can't be what they want to be. And this yeah. is where the gender thing comes in. It's like, you're not saying, no, you, we, we refuse to recognize your rights to identify as a female. We're saying that we are not comfortable with you competing as a female in sport because that's not gender, that's biology. So the, the big question around transgenders is whether after converting from male to female, they retain some of the male advantage over females or do they lose it by lowering their testosterone or having their testes removed. But in that surgery so process, they normally do have their testosterone leveled. Uh, load because they want to have those female characteristics, don't they? Right, and I'm not an expert on transgender yeah. medicine, so I couldn't tell you what percentage of times that happens. Yeah. But let's for argument say that in 70% of cases they do. Maybe it's even more. Maybe it's 90%. Yeah. The point is it's not true in 10%. So that means one in 10 transgender male to female athletes, they still have testes, which means they still have testosterone. And so now the authorities are saying, well, we've got to do something there as well. And the solution to that problem was similar to the DSD issue, is they said we're going to impose a limit on testosterone. Yeah. So that's eventually where the, the two issues converge. Duty Chand, Castor Semenya, and a number of other athletes with DSDs are subject to a regulation that is basically telling them they have to lower their yeah. testosterone level. And a transgender male to female has the same regulation. Yeah. It's, it's subtly different and they're in, in quite important ways different because the one is choice and the other one is not. So that makes them quite substantively so it's different. Tra transgender in very simplistic understood terms by the public is people who have had sex change operations and become different because of their emotional state. In the majority... Am I simplifying it too much? No, no you're not, but you're you're applying it to what happens in the majority of cases. Yeah. So where this gets really interesting and controversial is that the latest policies by sport don't require sex change. So in other words, the, the, the new IOC policy, which was, it's now a couple of years old, but there's another one basically waiting to be printed and, yeah. and released. But I think they're waiting on the Semenya decision because it'll have implications. The new policy is that you don't have to have surgical removal of testes you don't need to be recognized in law as a female. So you don't have to go through the legal hoops and, and jump through those hoops. All you need is to lower your testosterone levels. So in theory, if I went and thought that if I could run a time that would be competitive as a female athlete, as a male, mm -hmm. and I went and surgically or medicinally lowered my testosterone levels down, even though I would look exactly the same, theoretically, 
I could compete in women's events right. if they tested their, their st- is, it, is it as simple as that? It's as simple as that. So you'd need two things. You'd need a document that certifies that you identify as female. Yeah. And then you need to provide a medical record to show that your testosterone levels have been under 10 for 12 months. And, and that testosterone level of 10 might come down to 5 in the new policy, which was released to the press but hasn't yet come yeah. into effect. That's that 5 nanomoles per litre. Right. So that's, that's the IWF um, court case that is currently under review by the Court of Arbitration around that. So that the challenge from Semenya's team is that that level is not substantiated. Uh, yes. So, so with, with the fine print that the transgender policy at the moment says 10, might become 5, yeah. and then the DSD regulation currently says 5, they apply to different populations. So again, I just want to pull us back here and say, sure. we, we're not talking about Semenya as though she's transgender. She is fighting yes. the DSD regulation. The transgender regulation is basically probably the next one in the queue. Yeah. Because, because whatever happens out of the Semenya case, and I don't know which way it'll go, the, the, the transgender one is probably next in line because someone will challenge that. Well, there'll have to be some consistency in terms of testosterone, won't there? Across all of these different... Yeah, if it's five for one, you'd think it's got to be five for the other, unless there's a compelling reason not to make it five. The reason for lowering it, by the way, is that the average woman is at about Um, 1.7. 99% of women are under three. There are certain medical conditions that women have that elevate it up to potentially five. But the research that's been done, they reckon that if it's over five, it's a one in 10,000 chance. And that's, that's low enough that five becomes the ceiling. So whereas men have testosterone levels upward of 15 into the 20s, sometimes even over 30. So there's a, a theoretically clear difference between men and women's testosterone levels. And that's why it looks like an attractive way to regulate this issue. So, I mean, for me as a sort of an outsider looking at the science, you know, it feels I mean, in a way, quite restrictive to say you can only have a certain level of testosterone. But what you're saying is there is some merit in that argument that if you are above five, it is a significant advantage. Well, it could be. Could and this be. is where the, okay. so this is where we really well, it, well, it's like... A, it's a significant difference rather so, than an advantage. I bet we've got re- uh, listeners listening to this and their heads are spinning and they can't <laughs> keep track of what DSD and transgender is. And I hope, I hope that's not the case. But if it is, then welcome to the truth. Yeah. Because... Because if this if this podcast confuses you, then you've understood. Yeah. Like, you shouldn't leave this podcast going, it's clear now. Well, Ross and because I often actually, talk a little bit about when Ross is overseas and there's anything to do with the Castor Semini issue here in South Africa, I'm always the second person that gets <laughs> phoned by the TV networks and the radio stations to talk about it. But even for me, as somebody who's very involved in the sport of athletics, it is it is difficult to identify this. So if, you, if your head is spinning, as Ross has said, it, it is a difficult thing. And just picking up these terms, it may be even a case of even Googling some of these terms and getting an idea of what we're talking about yeah. if you're struggling with it. But that's what we're really trying to do here is trying to break it down so that when you talk, when the when the Castor Semini issue comes up at the dinner table, or whether you're talking amongst friends, or even is an, is an issue with you or anybody close to you, you know what you're talking about. There, there's not that confusion. Yeah. So so if we were to try and what we've discussed so far, if we were to try and distill it into one or two sentences, it would be the following. As pertains to DSDs, so Castor Semini is in this group, but instead of focusing on her, let me talk about all athletes with DSDs, and we know that there are probably in the double figures of them. Yeah. So in 2011, 2013, the IWF identified five or six, I think it was, 
We know that there are more than that. And we know that there have been many more going back in the past also. So like the, these are rare conditions, but they're not one in a million. Semenya is not the only one. Dudi Chand was not the, only the second person. So there's a, there's a group of these athletes with DSDs. And it would make sense, just very briefly, it would make sense that they would be performing in sport and there'd be a high percentage of them in sport purely because they do outperform athletes who have got if, less of these conditions if you, don't have this condition. If you believe that the DSD confers a performance oh, yeah. advantage, okay. yeah. then the overrepresentation would be part of your supporting yeah. argument, yes. Okay. And that has come up. So there are research papers out there that are published by the IAAF in which they argue that athletes with DSDs are overrepresented in the athletic population. In other words, per thousand people, you'll find more DSDs in an athlete group than you will in a non-athlete yeah. group. So that's that's evidence in support of the IWF position, and that that's that exists publicly. Yeah. I'm just mindful of this, just to clarify for listeners, is I testified at the court case in February for Semenya's team, and part of being involved there meant like signing these confidentiality statements, which yeah. I take very seriously. So I'm not going to talk about anything that was said at that court case until that court case's verdict is fully published. Yeah. At that point, we'll know what the courts have decided needs to be redacted and what can be made public, and then I'll gladly comment on the public stuff. Yeah. But for now, I'm talking high-level DSDs. And so this is Semenya and many others like her. Yeah. The, the sports authorities' argument, and here's, here's my simple thing, right? is that these athletes have got elevated levels of testosterone because of their development biologically. Elevated levels of testosterone give them an advantage that is similar to what a male has over a female athlete. And therefore, for the sake of the fairness of women's sport, these athletes should lower their testosterone. That's basically what the regulation is saying. In a nutshell, you, are, you have a difference of sex development you therefore have high testosterone. You therefore have an advantage that is unfair by, by virtue of violating a category, male-female. And so we have to intervene to reintroduce fairness. Does that yeah. more or less make sense? That's a four-bullet-point explanation of what the DSD regulation is doing. The transgender regulation, similar at the end, but what they're saying there is that you were previously biologically male, therefore you had the advantage of high testosterone. After you transition, in order to take that advantage away, we have to reduce your testosterone, and so we are intervening in the same way. So they end on the same point, but they yeah. start in different places. Does that? Yeah. I hope that clears it up for people. So, so I, I get that one, and I hope listeners do too. That, that is a very good way of, of simplifying it. So move on to the things like hyperandrogenism. Where, so where does that sit on this spectrum? Hi, hyper um, biologically means high. Mm. So More than. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like even, not even biologically, hypermarket, big shop. So hyper, high, androgenism. We've discussed what androgens are, male hormones. So these are people who've got elevated male hormones compared to the average. So again... An athlete with a DSD will typically have testosterone levels that are much higher than the average female group. So therefore, they are described as being hyperandrogenism. So the, the, the RAAF's policy covers hyperandrogenism in athletes with DSDs. So that's, that's women athletes who, who are showing characteristics that are more male than normal female characteristics. Not necessarily characteristics. And this is actually, that's actually a really important question. Because they, they don't necessarily have the characteristics that you can see. 
they have the high testosterone level that you can measure. But that doesn't always translate into something that you see. Yeah. So in other words, they can have high testosterone, but they don't use the testosterone. That's why they developed as women, because they're insensitive to it. So another quick biological lesson, sure. testosterone is like a key that unlocks a door. And in some people, the lock is broken. So the receptor that actually helps that testosterone do its job is malfunctioning or abnormal. And so those people have the key, testosterone, but they don't have the lock, so they can never open the door. So the, the, the physiological consequence of that is that they might have very high testosterone levels, just like males do, but they are completely insensitive. And that's a condition called AIS, androgen insensitivity syndrome. And that can be complete or it can be partial. So that creates a massive dilemma because if it's partial, how partial does it need to be before they're actually female, no advantage, as opposed to male enough to have an advantage? But do it's they still display high levels of testosterone if they were tested? Even the concentration is extremely high. So you could have a high level of testosterone but not able to use it. In fact, probably even higher because what, what the body does is, is, it, is it releases this testosterone and then it's kind of monitoring, did it work or not? And it, it's not working. So then it just pumps out more and more and more. It's like your air conditioner. Is if, is if you have an air conditioner running on a hot day and you open the door, the air conditioner has to work twice as hard. Yeah. So it's pumping out even more cold air because the temperature is not what it should be. So with testosterone, it would be the same thing. So now what you've got is high testosterone, but they are female because they cannot use it. So it may, it's like that, what's it, mariner's tail, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Yeah. That's what it is. It's testosterone, testosterone everywhere, but not a drop can be used. So, so they have the no male characteristics. Then become flawed, in other words. Well, that's the that's one yeah. of the main contentions: is you're using this this testosterone level as a marker, without acknowledging that just the presence of it isn't enough, and that's why, like, you and I might have very different testosterone levels but look similar, and someone else who looks like us might have low testosterone levels or twice as high because they use it differently. So there's there's got to be a an aspect of sensitivity to the hormone yeah. that determines it. So, so we talk about virilization, like how virilized is a man? And that basically means how much has his male characteristic developed? And that's a function not only of how much testosterone he has, but how well he's able to use it. So I guarantee you within an athletic population, if I ask you, and I won't ask you to say it out loud, but think of the most manly man you can think of. <laughs> some, some rugby player maybe. And you, and you just have this image in your head. The rock. The rock, for instance. <laughs> that's, that's, that's now the, the, the pinnacle of your, your subjective assessment of what testosterone does to yeah. a man. Then you think about the typical man. There's no guarantee that he's got more testosterone than the typical man at all. But what you can be sure of is that his use of it is greater. Yeah. And that's not just level. That's level plus sensitivity. Does that argument make sense? I, yeah. hope it, I hope it's clear. So that's why when we look at men's performing athletes, there's no guarantee that Usain Bolt, who, who, who has the physiological attributes that make him the fastest human being on earth. That's, so now we've got an objective standard for virilization. His testosterone is not necessarily higher than the slowest guy in that race. Might be the other way around. Yeah. So, so the whole how much does the testosterone level predict performance argument is quite flawed.
Yeah. Because more complex than just A to B. Yeah. I mean, in the case of his, of, of someone like Usain Bolt, it's, there's many other factors that make him a great runner, not just his hormone levels. Right. So it's part of it. Right. So when this debate happens and when the, the public and the journalists and even well-meaning academics get involved, they mess this up horribly because they use that argument, the fact that Bolt's testosterone might not be as or higher than the guy who comes fifth or 25th to say that testosterone doesn't matter. And that's a stupid argument. So when we, so if I can just explain this, when we compare Bolt to Shelley Ann Fraser, he runs 9.6, she runs 10.7, 10.8. She is 11% slower than he is. Why? Now, that's, that is primarily because he's male and she's female. And it's primarily because the difference between them is going to be androgens, mainly testosterone, plus a couple of others. But testosterone's like the, the head, the don of the androgen family. Yeah. Right? The assumption you make is that Shelley Ann Fraser Price has all the physiological attributes to be the fastest person in the world. She's got the muscle fiber, she's got the brain, she's got the enzymes, she's got the mitochondria, she's got the tendons, she's got everything it takes to be the fastest human in the world except she doesn't have testosterone. Yeah. That's why she's the fastest woman in the world and he's the fastest man in the world. So, so this argument of, of testosterone being sufficient to make you a world-class athlete is flawed. So what you're saying is in, in her case, that's not necessarily true. She, she's not physiologically the same as Usain Bolt except for testosterone. There's lots of other factors involved in him being... No, I'm saying that Shelley and Fraser and Usain Bolt are, are indistinguishable. Aside from the fact so that you he are has saying testosterone is the difference between those two athletes, uh, it depends on how you frame the question. Yeah, that's <laughs> and that's where it gets really tricky, right? So this yeah. is the debate. So I will read articles written by academics where they say testosterone doesn't make a difference because within men it doesn't predict performance. Let's let's just uh, let's just park that for a minute because I want to focus very much on what these terms will mean and we get on to the performance advantages of the mm. athletes but later on I think that's kind of we want to go with this is that how much of an advantage do these conditions give an athlete yeah. but the final one we got we wanted to talk about was this this sort of broad term of intersex now yeah. it's kind of a it's almost like an uncool word now but that's one term that everybody throws around when they talk about the caster semenia issue and this issue around sex and gender within yeah. sports. So just, just tell us a bit about intersex. What does that mean as a, as a broad term? So you remember you, you said earlier that, and, and you, you correctly picked up, that s sex is a spectrum where we have men and women on one side and then a whole bunch of stuff in between. If you think about intersex, it's literally describing a spectrum. In other words, you have... And, and, and like, remember your first day at school, the teacher says, all the boys on the right, all the girls on the left. But what happens if you're neither? You're in between the sexes. That's what intersex meant. Yeah. And so it was a term that was used to describe the set of conditions. And so basically intersex and DSD are the same thing with a couple of very subtle nuances. But intersex has been replaced by DSDs because it was deemed to be too crude and potentially offensive to people to cover the complexity of DSDs. So a, a DSD now, you can describe a 46XY DSD and a 46XX DSD, and you can subdivide it and so forth. Whereas intersex was kind of just an all-encompassing catchment term yeah. that that community itself rejected. And so in 2006, it might have been before that, but I, I've read a paper from 2006 where it was proposed, let's do away with intersex and talk instead about DSDs. And, and then related to intersex with terms like hermaphrodite, pseudo-hermaphrodite, Julius Malema, 
for those not in the know in South Africa, Julius Malema is one of the more opportunistic, outspoken politicians in South he's Africa. He's a very, very left-wing politician here yeah. in South Africa. For those yeah. and know, a, yeah, he's an aggressive speaker. And when the Semenya thing happened, he was quoted in a lot of the media um, reports back in 2009 as saying there's no such thing as hermaphrodites and she's a woman, blah, blah, blah. So that was where the term hermaphrodite was used in this context. So just explain hermaphrodite quickly. So biologically, if a hermaphrodite... Yeah, yeah, this, this one's fairly quick um, because we park it, we, we, we discuss it, then leave it. Hermaphrodite means you have both male and female gonads at the same time. So that happens a lot in plants. They'll have male and female. In human beings, it's incredibly rare if borderline non-existent. You, you don't find people who have testes and ovaries. It, it, I was reading articles yesterday preparing for this where it suggested that it can happen, but we're talking about unbelievably rare and it's so not internally a person would have ovaries internally and testes on the outside physically they would look male but internally they'd be female could be both inside okay yeah. yeah whereas normally as i said to you the development is at 10 weeks you have these what are called undifferentiated gonads and then they either become testes in the presence of the signal from the y or they become ovaries if that signal isn't there but the scenario that's required for you to develop both ovaries and testes is a completely different thing, and it's not relevant to this. But it was kind of one yeah. of those terms. So then you got hermaphrodite, you got pseudo-hermaphrodite, and these were all at various stages deemed to be offensive, perjurative terms, and biologically inaccurate, and so they've been done away with. It then became intersex, and it then became DSDs, which is where it is now. Just talk us about, about what you were saying about Julius Malema. He was uh, the commentator. I don't think he actually finished what you were saying. He talking about there isn't, there's no such thing yeah. as these conditions. When the, when the, um, we're digressing slightly here, but it's always interesting to talk about. No, but about it was, it. A, it was a really important illustration at the time of how this debate was going to go because people, people brought to the complexity of sex, and I hope the listeners by now, as we said, they've started to realise that actually this isn't just so simple anymore. Yeah. But all of a sudden you had all these role players, these, these public figures who were coming along and saying, Winnie Mandela was another one who said, if you want to know what caste is, just look up her skirt. Yeah. Someone else said, just pull down her jeans or so, something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and and, you, and you'd, get, you'd get statements like, only her mother can know. And I understand that one a little bit better than I understand some of these stupid arguments like to look up her skirt kind of thing. Yeah. But the point was that you had high-profile figures. And, 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 and Malema was one who in many interviews was, was railing against the IAAF for being uh, racist and sexist and whatnot and, and just wanting to suppress her talent and so forth. Uh, and he rejected the idea that she was a hermaphrodite. And then that wasn't helpful because, A, it politicized it, and B it introduces terms like hermaphrodite and that's not what's in play here yeah. and it confuses people even more. I mean, this is confusing enough when you're accurate. Yeah. Imagine how confusing it could be if we made things up. So just to give, it, to give some sort of context, particularly to the Castus Mini issue, and we, we, in South Africa and anybody that's followed the case in South Africa, we've seen politicians getting behind it because it is such an emotive... And it's not just a motive because it's a sex and gender thing. It's also a motive because of the history of the country as well. Mm. So she's a black woman. She comes from a disadvantaged background. Politically, it's good to support her if you're a politician. Um, and we've seen that happen. And it's very easy for people in very senior positions, even in the, in the world of sport here in South Africa, who have maybe lost sight of the biology and got involved in the emotion. And people that we've even talked about who are high-level professionals who've kind of had to sort of take a step back and say, 
hang on a minute, let's let's focus on the biology here, not get so emotionally involved in this in yeah. this process. Yeah, this is an issue that's just ripe for ideologies. Yeah. And because it's high profile and public, it has been capitalized on by many people who are pushing an ideological agenda and are trying to exploit it for the purposes of their identity politics. And I as I said, I I, I get why that's people. That's some people's priority. It's not mine. I couldn't. I couldn't care less, honestly, about that stuff. I, I see, like the United Nations subcommittee the other day brought something out in which they complained about the patriarchy and so forth. It's like, guys, the, the yeah. It really when when this <laughs> amendment is. decision yeah. comes out, I'll talk more about some of the stuff Specific, that's going yeah. on there and the yeah. specifics. But the the point comes back here again, and it's the same thing for DSDs as it is for transgenders. Sports authorities are asking. Do individuals here have an unfair advantage? Yeah. That's the fundamental question. Now, when is it an unfair advantage? It's an unfair advantage when it challenges the reasons for the separation, right? So the question every single person should start with in, in terms of performance advantage is why do we have a separate category for women? That, that's, think about it. Like, Why do we have to have a woman's title in Wimbledon and a men's title. Yeah. Why do we have a women's marathon in London that is separate from the men's marathon in London? And the answer is obvious. Well, let's let's start let's start with it with a simple question from a from a completely outsider's perspective. If you had to take the differences between men and women across all sport, what is the difference between in terms of time and strength? Is is it ten percent? Is it twenty percent? Or does it vary depending on the sport? Is, is there a general rule? I've I've yet, much I've yet to see one that's less than 10% yeah. in a measurable sport. So obviously when we talk about tennis and golf and cricket and rugby and hockey, it's very difficult to quantify the performance difference. Yeah. But in the quantifiable and swimming, cycling, running, where you can measure weightlifting to some extent also, 10% is the minimum. When you get to the throwing events, I mean you look at throwing events, the women use a discus that weighs half that of the men yeah. and they still throw at the same distance. Yeah. So, but on the other side of the coin, you sometimes get some very good um, female long-distance runners and swimmers who are more than capable of mixing it with top men at, the, at, this, at a different level. So, Yeah, I would argue that that's a, that's a selection issue. Like when you yeah. talk about these ultra, ultra-endurance events, I think that if this, you know, the assumption you always make in sport is that it's like versus like. Yeah. And I don't think that's always true. So then it might distort that a little bit. But the difference between men and women from 100 meters to marathon is between 10 and 12%. Yeah. Long jump to high jump to pole vault, it's between 10 and 12%. Throwing events, it's even more. But it's, you can't compare directly because they use different weighted implements. A javelin and a hammer and a discus don't weigh the same, so you can't compare. Yeah. But the point is that men have a massive advantage over women at the elite level. I mean, let's talk about. Like, I mean, let's just, for an example, take the 800 meters, which is Casta Semenya's uh, mm. distance. She's run a best of 155.33. Uh, yeah, um, it's 154 something now. Uh, she ran last year yeah, in Paris or Monaco. So, so yeah, mid so 150s. The men's world record is 141. Well, she's 14 seconds behind. Yeah, which, which in the world of sport is an enormous, enormous difference. Right, and and so a couple of things there. First of all, not many men run 154. Yeah. Right, so if you go down to your local university meet or a club meet and so on, very few men run as fast as the fastest woman. The fastest woman is in the top 1% of the world's population. 
but she's 10% behind the fastest man. Yeah. And at the elite level, it is massive. I mean, when you watch Usain Bolt, we keep coming back to Bolt because it's obvious, but when you, okay, let's change that. When you watch Wade for Nickak win the title in Rio in 2016, the guy who came eighth in that final was two and a half, three percent behind him. And I promise you, you didn't even look like he was in the same race. 10%. And nobody remembers him and either. You didn't even yeah. see him cross the finish yeah. line because by that stage, the camera had followed the winner. Yeah. He was that far behind. That's 2%. Yeah. 10% is a completely different category, literally. It is. And that's why it's there. So the reason women have a separate category is because if they didn't, women would disappear from sport completely at the yeah. elite level. You'd still get the woman who comes 650th out of a mass participation rate. You know, maybe the best woman in the Boston Marathon on Monday will finish in the top 600 men. But that's non-existent in the elite, in the yeah. elite context. So, so women's sport exists separately in order to protect women. Not in a, I don't mean that in a patriarchal way, but to protect the integrity of women's competition. If you did not have women's sport, then with the exception of ski jumping and equestrian events, women would no longer be in elite sport. So that's the start point, right? It's not about racism and sexism and patriarchy. It's about understanding that women have a right to fair competition in their own events. Yeah. The question is, and this is where it gets tricky, and where the IAAF, I believe, have made some mistakes, how do you ensure that fairness? Yeah. That's the problem. And what is the level of but the you, advantage? But you have to do it. Yeah. So boxing has categories. I don't know what they are offhand, but there's like, say, 12 Olympic boxing classes. And if I weigh 61.5 and I'm half a kilogram too heavy to fight as a flyweight or whatever it is, that's too bad. Yeah. You have, once you draw a line that separates competition into categories, you have to defend that line. Yeah. Um, we don't have categories for height in basketball, even though we know that height makes a massive difference. So then it's an interesting, like, why not? Why has no one ever said we need to protect the short guy? Let's have a basketball competition for six foot and under. They've never done it. And it's sort of to some extent arbitrary. Yeah. I mean, well, physiologically, you just have an advantage if you're tall. Yes. It's not the only thing that counts to be a good basketball player because there are shorter players that are right. good, you are good basketball players. Vastly overrepresented if you're tall. Like in the yeah. United yeah, States, sure. if you're seven foot or taller, one in six of you are in the NBA. Yeah, that's how common it is. Yeah. Whereas if you're six foot two, it's one in a hundred thousand, one in a million even. So being tall is obviously an advantage in basketball. Yet we haven't decided to protect short people. Paralympics is the other one where there are separations. So yeah. you can have different severities of cerebral palsy, for instance, uh, even amputees. Yeah, and it's a very confusing space that if you don't know and the that different gets, categories. Yeah. And that's so. S Paralympics is most similar to sex in terms of how do you separate. Because if you, if you take two athletes with cerebral palsy, now someone's got to decide who's more affected than the other. Yeah, yeah. And then you're going to try and protect the person who's more affected by putting him in a, in a, in a class of competition where in theory he competes against mm. equally affected people. That's what women's sport is trying to do. It's trying to say, here's a group of humans mm. who don't have, at the elite level, the performance benefits of men. Yeah. Because they lack androgens they lack virilization they lack the secondary sex characteristics like hemoglobin vo2 max muscle strength low body fat so here's what we'll do is we'll put these humans in a separate category females and we'll let them compete yeah. and that's great until someone with a dsd comes along 
or until someone who's transgender comes along. Because now we have to figure out how do we protect the line we drew. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. So I mean, this is this is where we we, we kind of wanted. This is the nub of the conversation. Yeah. How much of an advantage does an athlete with these conditions have over the average athlete? Yeah. And I think, as you've sort of partly explained, it, it's it's not just the only thing. So the principle sort of point of conjecture with the IAAF and the um, the Court of Arbitration for Sport um, with Kester Semenya is their research, and this has been quite publicly put out there, their research doesn't support the fact that her condition alone gives her an unfair advantage. Maybe you could explain a bit about that. You know, how do you, is it advantage, advantage politics in a way? Um, because that's essentially what the, the case is about. Does she have yeah. an advantage or doesn't she? Right, so on this, one, advantage. on this one, I can only go so far. Yeah. Um, because when the, when the court decision comes out, then I'll be able, as I said, to see what they've redacted and what they haven't. So what I say in answer to that is, is what I've written before up to 2017, 2018. It doesn't cover what happened at the court case, just yeah. to be very clear. I'm not telling you what happened, went down there. The Duty Chan decision of 2015 was very clear in that it gave the authorities a mandate to go away and find evidence. It said that they had insufficient evidence at that time, but that they had good reason to want to have a policy, so we're going to give you two years to go away and collect your evidence and then come back to us. That's what they did, and the, the way they did it was they, they went to the World Championships in 2011 and 13, where they already had the performances and they'd already measured the testosterone, and they tried to link those together. So what they were looking for there was evidence that having high testosterone gave you a performance advantage compared to not having high testosterone. If they found it, they would be able to come back and say, here you go, here's proof that women who have elevated testosterone levels have a performance advantage compared to women who don't. And in their minds, that would have been enough to reinstate their policy. You can, you can challenge that and say, well, people who win sports events obviously have some advantages, so why should testosterone be treated any differently to other advantages? And maybe we can get onto that concept in a moment. But the, the basic premise was the IWF was looking for evidence that the testosterone levels improved performance. They didn't find convincing evidence of that. And I remember writing a piece in 2016 in which I looked at that evidence and I, I remember writing, it just isn't enough. Yeah. Because the, the advantages they found were extremely small, and they only found those advantages in a handful of events. So in other words, they didn't find that high testosterone was an advantage in a 100, but they did find it in a 400, in an 800, and in a 400 hurdles. They Which didn't in itself is flawed from a completely outsider's perspective. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting, right? Conceptually, it's flawed because... The premise is that testosterone is the difference between men and women across all events, but yeah. now you find no difference. Yeah. So why might that be? The obvious reason that they wouldn't find that is that when you... Let me, let me give you this analogy. We've already agreed in this podcast, and I'm sure no listener would dispute this, that being tall is an advantage in basketball. Yes? Yep, even though I'm not a basketball player, but I am tall, that's, yes. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that's... So what that means is it's not sufficient to be tall, but it's necessary, right? Do you agree? I agree. So being yep. tall is not enough, but if you want to be a basketball, you have to have it. Yeah. But if we went to the NBA and we ranked all those players from tallest to shortest, 
and then we ranked them from best to worst in the NBA, those lists would not overlap. In other words, in the NBA, being tall doesn't have a benefit. Same thing if we went to yeah. the marathon in London and we said, right, do you agree that VO2 max is an important determinant of endurance performance? VO2 max for listeners is how much oxygen you can use. So it's basically a function of how your heart, your lungs, and your muscles work together to get oxygen into the muscles. VO2 max matters for long-distance running, yes? Yeah. Yeah. But if we measured the marathon runners in London and we ranked them from 1st to 20th at the finish line, and then we ranked them from VO2 max from highest to lowest, those lists would not overlap. So in other words, the point I'm trying to make here, and I hope it's coming across, is that within a small population, a narrow group of people, the thing you're looking for disappears because it's the only thing they all share. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. So when we go to the NBA, we already filter out everyone who's not tall. The NBA only has tall people. <laughs> so therefore, other things start to make a difference. Yeah. So now, what's the fundamental flaw in the IWF research? Is that they're looking for the difference between women performance as a function of women's testosterone. They're already filtering out the low testosterone as, as being something that all those women share. So of yeah. course they're going to find no difference. They would have found the same thing in men. Yeah. If you look for difference correlations between men's performance and men's testosterone, you won't find it. Why? Because they all have it. So then other stuff starts to matter. Then your fast twitch fibers, your VO2 max, your running economy, your ability to lose heat, depending on which sport you're in, those things start to take over. So the IAAF was never going to find it in that study. And I am, I am somewhat sympathetic because... How do you show that an athlete with a DSD has an unfair male advantage? It's impossible because yeah. that human being doesn't exist as a man. They only exist as what you have them as as a woman. So you can try and lower their testosterone levels, but think about how much else you're changing at the same time. Those medicines have side effects. Yeah. And so there is no way that I can see that you can quantify the effect of these, of, of, of these conditions, these DSD conditions on performance. And I wrote that in 2016. I was like, the moment the court gave the IWF that instruction, I remember saying this, I don't know if it was just a tweet or a, an article, I said those guys should have headed down to the lake and started drinking Swiss wines for the <laughs> next two years because they were given basically an impossible task. Um, and when they came up with the research, and subsequently we've done some analysis of that research and we think it's flawed anyway, but the research just was it just wasn't enough yeah. and and again i'm not telling you this is my opinion now i wrote this in 2016 and so eventually their policy comes out and now it's only covering four events so it looks discriminatory <laughs> people it, was it looks targeted at cast well that was the thing yeah. like there was why it became an emotional because, thing yeah. well how can you have this policy and it yeah. only targets her events yeah absolutely well, it wasn't targeted at her but it seems that way it looked, if you're a politician and if you weren't following the 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 cast decision and the mandate they'd given and the IWF research, it totally looked that way. Yeah. I get it. But it wasn't. The, the reason it covered only those events is because those were the only events where they were able to find evidence. So they, they, couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't have gone back to Cass and said, here's our new policy for all events because they would have been asked, where's the evidence? And they said, well, we don't have it for all events. And the court would have said, well, then see you later. Mm -hmm. So they, they were somewhat painted into a corner by the CAS decision and then by their own study design.
So I think that I suppose the final question here, and we don't know the results of the the CAS decision on Castor Semenya, and certainly we'll be doing a podcast on that when that comes out. It's an emotional issue. It's a controversial issue. It's going to be talked about no matter what the decision is by CAS. That this this is going to be a decision talked about for years. In your opinion, can it be solved? Can it be solved amicably with all the parties concerned? Is there always going to be something that is? in our lifetime is going to be something that is going to be continually revisited for the next hundred years in sport? No, so it can't, it can't it's, no, it's no solution. There's no, first of all, okay, define solution. There's well, certainly is a way. It, is, it a, is, is there always going to be that gray area? Or is there going to be, you are, if you have that, you're that, and if you have that, you're that. I mean, is, is, can it be defined well, we ever can't. properly? We can't continue to exist in this gray space of like wait and see if there's better evidence that comes along. We, that's impossible. So, again, I'm not talking specifically now about the yeah. Semenya thing, but about DSDs in general. We've we seem to have been since 2009, like trying out different regulations. At some point, you have to stop. Yeah. You either have to have a regulation that goes unchallenged and goes into effect, and compels athletes to lower their testosterone, or you have to have nothing. And you have to say that you just allow these athletes to compete as they're born until such strong evidence comes on that people go, wow, now it's obvious. You know, maybe one day an athlete with a DSD comes along, is a woman, born as a woman, raised as a woman, and runs uh, 20.02 20 seconds for 200 or yeah. 45 seconds for 400. Then you'd go, oh, wow, obviously DSDs do have an advantage. Yeah. But until, until that exists, maybe the authorities will just have to say, you know what, this is not a hill worth dying on and yeah. we're going to leave it so it's not going to stay gray forever because at some point someone will commit but the reality is that whatever position is adopted whether it's to enforce a policy that 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 requires that these athletes these hyperandrogenic athletes lower their testosterone or whether it's the complete elimination of a policy that allows them to compete as is someone is going to be unhappy yeah so there's no solution that will satisfy all parties and, the, and the, the, the current regulation, the one that targets testosterone, that was the attempt at compromise. You know, it was, it was the attempt to say, all right, we don't want you to not compete. We want to allow you to compete, but as long as you meet certain criteria. And meanwhile, all the other athletes were supposed to be happy because their testosterone would be low, so no longer would they have an advantage. So in theory, everyone's kind of happy. That situation can't continue. So you're either going to have a situation when that minority group is extremely unhappy because they have to lower their testosterone and the others are happy or you're going to have a situation where the minority is happy and the majority is less happy but without there being sufficient evidence so everyone yeah. just has to deal with it you know you're basically going to end up telling people sorry that's just how it is yeah it's a very complex subject and uh, we ask you to weigh in if you want to on our Science of Sport podcast, which is our hashtag, uh, our handle, sorry, on Twitter. You can also follow Ross at Science of Sport and myself, Mike Finch, SA. Uh, just a, a final word, Ross, from you on this subject. We, we're still, as we said a, a few moments ago, awaiting the, the, the decision from the Court of Arbitration on Cassis Semini. We haven't necessarily talked specifically about her, which we will do in that podcast, but um, just looking at this in your experience over the last sort of it's almost a decade now that we've been dealing with the Casta Semeni issue um, we've do you find it frustrating when you hear some of the conversation going on around this subject um, because there is so little insight from a lot of people who pretend to be experts first of all and, and, and the average person who really doesn't understand the issues at stake here 
I don't find frustrating the questions that are asked because it's clear that people want to understand it and need to understand yeah. and, and that they're enormously confused. So then I'm more than happy to talk about it. What frustrates me is that people who do know distort what they know for the sake of making an ideological argument. That really annoys me. The, the politicization of the issue is frustrating. Um, the accusations of discrimination that need not be used annoys me. And then on the performance advantage side, people who say, oh, well, testosterone clearly has no benefits for athletes because people with high testosterone don't necessarily win. Or they'll say that having high testosterone is the same as being tall in basketball or having long arms like Michael Phelps in swimming. And like even three weeks ago, I read an academic paper written by two scientists who used that exact analogy. They said, they said that Castor-Semenya's high testosterone levels or DSD athletes' high testosterone levels is the same as Michael Phelps's long arms. No, no not at all. Yeah. And like maybe that's one we put in the parking lot and we come back to when the decision comes out because I, I very strongly reject that. I, I, think it, I think it deliberately muddies the waters of this debate. The debate is unbelievably complicated. I mean, we've discussed it now for yeah. easily over an hour and we've, we, I, hope, I hope that we've provided some clarity on the big picture and maybe when we talk about the specifics as disclosed by the court decision in a couple of weeks, we can further help people understand. But the, <laughs> the, 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 what looks to me to be deliberate distortion, and when we do the Semenya discussion, I'm yeah. going to bring some quotes from articles that academics have written, and I want to read them out and actually have a go at them because they really, really annoy me. They're, yeah. they're, they're borderline dishonest. Yeah. 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 Thanks very much, Ross, for joining us. And uh, we'll listen to you and we'll have our next podcast up uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. 